0: Okay, just a reminder on some scheduling things and a couple of announcements. In uh, two weeks, on July the 4th, we will be having a 4th of July cookout here, and people need to sign up so we know, A, how many will be here, and, B, who's going to bring what. And that will be a good time to have. We'll cook out hamburgers, hot dogs, a few other things, and people bring some other goodies, so that's going to be a good time. And then... Um, we have uh, this event on Saturday for Child Evangelism Fellowship to find out what's involved in running a good news club at a local uh, elementary school. And so we're going to meet here Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And if you'd like to find out, have any questions, any interest, just curious, just want to know what it's all about, then come and that uh, we're going to have representatives from Child Evangelism Fellowship as well as the Spring Branch Independent School District so this is a time to ask questions a time when many of us who want to see this happen uh we still have questions and so this will be an op- is an opportunity to just find out what it's all about uh what's involved and what we need to do and then the other announcement is one I need to keep uh, before us, and that is that we need some new teachers in prep school, and this is very important. Uh, we try to work with, uh, in the different classes, we have basically, I think, three, sometimes four classes, four age groups, and we try to assign two or three teachers to each class so that they can rotate through the year so somebody doesn't have to feel like they're signing their life away, that it's a lifetime commitment. Or even a full year commitment, where they're going to miss church uh, every Sunday, but they're back there for two or three months at a time, and then they rotate with somebody else. And so that gives them the opportunity to. Uh, it's an important ministry, helping to train, uh, train the kids, and prepare them to eventually come into Bible class and to be able to understand what goes on and what we're, uh, what we're talking about. I don't think there's any other. Uh, announcements. Nothing comes to mind. I think we need to be in prayer for uh, Camp Arete. I think there's some things going on with them, some financial uh, needs that are coming up at the last minute. We need to be in prayer for Camp Arete. And we also need to be in prayer for uh, Kathy Keith's family. Her mother went to be with the Lord today, uh, this morning, and sh- she had been uh, ill for some time. And I know Kathy's been uh, taking care of her f- uh, for... Uh, several years and recently they had moved her into their home and were taking care of her there when she was under hospice care. And so this is a time of uh, of rejoicing for every believer because she is a believer and she's face to face with the Lord. But it's also a time of, of uh, personal sorrow as any time when somebody leaves because even though we know they're saved, it's a time when they're not with us and we miss them. And so we need to be in prayer for the uh, for the family and for the service. Uh details may be sent out as I understand and Jack's hiding back there behind a the computer screen. But it's just supposed to be I think it's going to be a small private uh graveside on Friday afternoon. Um so uh I don't know about the viewing and I'll we'll if there's any information people need to know uh we'll be sending that out via email. All right, let's uh go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the word this evening, then, I will, um, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that you are the God of comfort. And that we are to comfort those with the comfort with which we've been comforted, which is the comfort that comes from your word, the comfort that comes from knowing the uh, truth of your word. And though there are many of us who have experienced the death of a loved one in the past year, we know that it is uh, you that comforts us ultimately and that we know exactly what happens at the time of death. They're face-to-face face with the Lord, and we pray for Kathy and her fam- her sisters and her family and that uh, it will be a great opportunity during the service to glorify you and to be a witness to those who come. Father, we pray for us as a church that we might be faithful witnesses and that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what happens with the nation, no matter what the trajectory might be or the circumstances, no matter how chaotic things appear our happiness our joy our well-being is not based upon circumstances but upon you it's based upon the fact that we are here to have the privilege of participating positively through the application of doctrine in your plan and that plan includes good things it includes negative circumstances but as we as believers stand firm we rep- we represent you We represent the truth of your word as we are ambassadors for you and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that you might strengthen us in our focus and in our presentation of the gospel, both in the way we live and the way we uh, enunciate that and articulate that in our daily life. We pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might be strengthened and encouraged, being reminded of your sovereign control over the affairs of men. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're in Acts chapter 16, and we're looking at this issue with demon possession, especially as we see it in this one instance that occurs as Paul and Silas are being followed around by a uh, this slave girl who is demon-possessed. And we covered this a little bit last time. I just want to review, hit the high points, build our way back to where we were before we get into a few more details related to demon possession. I I was asking the question why is it that that this was such a major issue in the gospel period as well as in the period of Acts and there were a number of people who are presented to Christ we have several stories I think there's only about eight or nine distinct episodes that we're told about but we're also told through some general statements that people brought the sick and the lame and the blind and the demon possessed to Jesus to be uh, to be healed. And that word "healed" was a generally a broad word, and it covered in, in, the the um, casting out of a demon. A technical word that should always be used, be not exorcism, because exorcism is a word only used of the pagan pagans who are using forms of magical incantation or ritual to free somebody from demon possession so exorcism is never used in any context related to jesus or the apostles in casting out a demon only that one phrase casting out a demon a lot of confusion that goes on in theology among christians a lot of it just dominated by fear And there is a lot of fear. The issue in demon possession is one of fear. We fear losing control. We, As we get older, there are a lot of things we lose control over. We live through life, and there are a lot of circumstances around us that cause us to be fearful because we are not in control of so many circumstances. And to have a being that we are totally unfamiliar with somehow... Uh, enter into our body and take over control has got to be one of the most scary, frightful things that anybody could encounter. And yet, what we see here is that Jesus in, is in complete control. He has authority and sovereignty over even the most evil forces of Satan, and and He can deliver us. And if Jesus Christ can deliver the unbeliever from these most horrible circumstances then there's no other circumstance that we're going to face as believers that we should be fearful of because this demonstrates the power and authority that Jesus Christ has over some of the most extreme types of things that can happen to human beings and therefore the kinds of things that we face on a day-to-day basis uh, pale in significance. So it's an a fortiori argument. If Jesus can have control over the demons and over Satan and can cast out demons, then Jesus has the power and authority to deal with any lesser issue in our lives. So we're looking at this issue of demon possession and demon influence. Paul is in uh, uh, Philippi, our Philippi, as we pronounce it in English, Philippi in, in Greek, located here. He's come there on his second missionary journey, landed at Neapolis and traveled up to uh, Philippi. We're told, just to review the story, that while they were going around Philippi, there was a slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination, a spirit of divination who is bringing wealth to her owners because she is... A fortune teller. This word for having a demon is the word, uh, Puthanos, having a Puthanos type spirit, which connects that to the, uh, type of demon possession that occurred, uh, with the Oracle of Delphi. An Oracle was someone who was a prophet or priest in the, a pagan prophet or priest who gave, answered questions and gave information, uh, about the future. And there are various different stories about the, um, about, uh, the Oracle of Delphian mythology. This was now the temple to Apollo, uh, that was there. And previously, Apollo had come and slain the older, uh, Puthanas spirit and had, uh, then, uh, indwelt another, uh, Python. That was one version. There were some other versions, uh, that were told about that. But this was a place where the, or um, the uh, oracle uh, gave, uh, gave prophecies. We went through some of that last time. Uh, this girl, though, in Philippi is going around following Paul, claiming, proclaiming that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us, and then in English they insert the article the. Actually, in Greek, no article is there. Now, because of the uh, various nuances of the Greek article, it could be taken as definite, and so that's not necessarily a wrong view, um, but it's more likely just uh, just a generic statement proclaiming a way of salvation. So I think a, an indefinite article may be the most appropriate way to translate that into uh, English. After many days, this annoyed Paul, and so he commanded the demon to come out of her. Key phrase there is that word, to come out, as we'll look at in a minute. And then after that, that angered her masters, and so they had Paul arrested uh, in the, and dragged into the agora, which is located uh, here on this slide uh, before the authorities. We looked at the various activities associated with demonism. Uh, demonism was associated with idolatry. Uh, Any form of idolatry, there's overt idolatry and there is covert idolatry. By overt idolatry, I mean the worship of specific pagan gods and goddesses who are expressed in idols of wood, stone, or metal. Covert idolatry is when we are worshiping abstract ideals. We worship self, we worship money, we worship the things that money can buy. Uh, We worship at various uh, intellectual idols but they are not necessarily physical idols. There are two different kinds of idolatry. Idolatry is prohibited in Exodus twenty-three through five, Romans one to twenty-five, and First Peter ten, fourteen to twenty-one. As we went through last time, shows us that behind much of the pagan religions and behind pagan idols was a demon. So that there is an association there. So that the the, the views, the the theology of the demon. I mean, of the idol and the false religions is a theology of the demon. So that demonic thinking is equivalent to human viewpoint thinking or religious thinking that is contrary to the Bible. So this idea that for something to be demonic, it has to be overtly associated with the occult or witchcraft or something like that is extremely superficial. Anything that is expressing a human viewpoint, utopic view, an utopic mentality, such as even the Walt Disney film Pollyanna, is expressing a demonic or satanic viewpoint. It's just packaging it in a very attractive package, and it doesn't have to be something that is like the exorcist for it to be demonic. In fact, the liberation theology that Reverend Jeremiah Wright preached from his pulpit when um, Barack Obama attended that church in Chicago uh, was some of the most perverse forms of demonism and demonic philosophy and demonic thought ever to come out of any pulpit. Uh, All... uh, 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 liberation theology is because it's grounded in marxism it's a marxist re- re- renewal or a marxist uh, uh, distortion and counterfeit of, of, of christian theology uh, re- uh, It <clears throat> excuse me um it's it's at the very root of replacement theology as well as it's expressed in palestinian uh theology they're very much they're the pro-palestinian our Christian Palestinianism, as we're studying on Thursday night, is very much rooted in a Marxist liberation theology as well, and that's been that way for about 30 years. That was the second point, that any human thought system not related to the worship of the one true living God is in fact the worship of demons and is demon-influenced thinking. I talked about First Thess- Samuel fifteen twenty-three: "'Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft.'" because rebellion was Satan's original sin. And so point three was that when God and his control of history is rejected, then idolatrous humans seek other avenues for control of their chaotic life, and they turn in one form or another to that which is demonic. The more overt forms are what we refer to as the occult, uh, forms of Satan worship, forms of overt idolatry, but then there are much more subtle, uh, covert forms that are used. And all forms of divination somehow connect to a demonic worldview, a demonic concept where there somehow man can control his destiny, get into, find out about the future, totally apart, apart from God. And we talked about some different forms. Of divination, uh, <clears throat> using, uh, arrows, uh, the teraphim and hep, uh, heptomancy, which is the, using the liver to, uh, foretell the future. And then I looked at some scripture. It brings us down to, uh, the, the, a little more expansion on Delphi. Uh, This is a picture of where the temple to Apollo existed, where uh, the oracle of Delphi functioned, and she sat over a hole in the ground, as this illustration shows, where gases came up. And there are many theories today that it was uh, inhaling these different gases that brought about some form of hallucination, some form of trance, uh, where she spoke in glossolalic utterance, some form of what is a counterfeit of the biblical uh, teaching of tongues, and uh, yet we don't really know exactly what that was like. Here's another artistic rendering of her standing over this uh, this uh, crack in the ground with the gases coming up, and this was her source of, uh, of inspiration for her uh, utterances. Now, that brings us up to about where we stopped the last time, Point number six, another form of divination that's exposed in the Bible is that of necromancy. Necromancy, getting in touch with the the spirits of the dead in order to find out what's going on in the other world, find out the future, find out things that are unknown to us through either uh, divine revelation or through uh, reason, rationalism, or or experience. Uh, This is described... A couple of ways in Scripture, in Isaiah 8, 19, uh, when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards. Uh, this is a term de- describing necromancers, those involved in necromancy, those involved in spiritism. As I pointed out last time, spiritism became very popular in uh, Western civilization and in America in the mid-19th century. Mary Todd Lincoln, the wife of the president Abraham Lincoln, uh, was very much involved in spiritism and had seances in the White House. Uh, another well-known uh, literary figure, Arthur Conan Doyle, who is the uh, writer and the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was deeply immersed in spiritism and in conducting seances. In fact, uh, after the pop- with the popularity of Sherlock Holmes, at one point he reached that he reached that point where he just wanted to kill Holmes off. And he ha- had him had him killed off by Moriarty. And part of the reason for that is he wanted to quit writing so he could spend more time investigating uh, all of these things related to spiritism and seances and that kind of a thing. He really devoted much of his life to that. So this has influenced a lot of people. We saw things that happened in the 80s and 90s with the rise of the so-called new age movement i always loved to cover that that moody bible institute had on their uh, uh their 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 moody publication their moody uh, moody journal moody monthly and there was a picture of a beautiful apple and a quarter of it was cut out and inside it was black and rotten and the caption underneath said new age oh lie same old lie, just packaged a new way. There was nothing new in the New Age movement. It was just repackaged for a modern, uh, modern audience. And you remember seeing people like, uh, Jay-Z Knight in, in, uh, interviewed on Good Morning America, where she channeled, a uh, you know, 5,000-year-old spirit from an ancient world and different things like that were going on. It was really a bizarre time, and people thought of the New Age movement as something really weird, but you don't hear much about it anymore. Why? Those ideas have become mainstream, and people don't even think about it as something strange anymore. It's just become accepted in a lot of areas of um, of our culture. So Isaiah 8:19 talks about these mediums and wi- wizards and describes them as those who whisper and mutter. And should not people seek their God? Should they seek their dead on behalf of the living? And the answer is no. You shouldn't be seeking to contact the dead. And I pointed out last time that there have been some uh, well-known figures in the world of magic and illusions such as Houdini, for one, earlier in the 20th century. Towards the end of the 20th century, there was another one known by the name of the amazing Randy, R-A-N-D-I, and they put out uh, great, large sums for rewards for anyone who could demonstrate that they had actually contacted the dead. And no one has ever been able to claim any of that reward money uh, because it's totally bogus and totally fraudulent. Another verse from Isaiah that tells us a little bit something about the operation of these uh, spiritists, these mediums and witches uh, is in Isaiah twenty nine four. You shall be brought down. Both of these passages are in uh, in, in context where. Israel is being condemned by the prophet Isaiah because they have become uh, so involved in demonism and uh, and witchcraft and mysticism and and everything that they have uh, completely become spiritually uh, spiritually blind and spiritually darkened. So in Isaiah twenty nine four, <clears throat> a statement is made: you, you shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground that's the role of the of the uh demon what would happen is the witch the medium would call upon the dead person and it was like like a ventriloquist a voice would come up uh out of the ground and so this was a called an ov demon that's the word that's used in the hebrew in the old testament and this was translated into the greek uh, by the term in uh, <clears throat> and so this brings us to one of the uh, critical episodes key episodes that occurred in the old testament with the with king saul and the witch of Endor. king saul and the witch of Endor. so let's turn in our bibles to first Uh, Samuel uh, chapter 28, 1 Samuel chapter 28. This is at the very end of the reign of the first um, uh, king of the United Kingdom, the first king of the United Kingdom. He's not the first king of Israel, though. This is one of my favorite little trivial questions I like to ask people to see if they've really read their Bible. Uh, Who's the first king of Israel? Anybody know? Can anybody give me the right answer? Those of you who heard me, who? Abimelech. That's right. Not Saul, because in Judges chapter 9, the son of uh, of Gideon, Abimelech, was crowned king of Israel by the men of Shechem, and he reigned for two years. I didn't say who was the first king God anointed to be. See, people don't listen to the question. The question, I didn't say who's the first king God anointed, who's the first genuine king, who's the first king of the United Kingdom. I said, who's the first king of Israel? And it's, it's Abimelech. Uh, everybody thinks that Gideon was such a great spiritual hero, but as I've taught you many times, at the end, uh, after Gideon has his victory over the Midianites and the... Uh, tribes want to make him king of israel he says no 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 i'm not going to be king of israel then he set up an ephod he had an ephod which is a priestly garment set it up to be worshiped leading the people back into idolatry and then he named his son avimelech and avimelech means my father is king so he says no 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 i'm not going to be your king but then he names his son my father is king so he had a lot of pseudo humility and then Abimelech is filled with humility, and he goes, he lives in Shechem or Shchem as it's pronounced in Hebrew, Shechem, you have to really get that guttural in there. And uh, uh, they eventually uh, have a revolt against him and kill him, but uh, they do crown him to be king of, um, of Israel, this is this horrible period in the history of Israel, known as the time of the judges. And the beginning of this period, or near the beginning of it, is the story of Gideon. But towards the end of it, we have the story uh, uh, of Saul, because the period of the judges ends with the last judge, who is Samuel, Samuel the prophet. And in First Samuel chapter eight, the Israelites go to Samuel and say, "We." We want to have a king like everybody else. So they've rejected Samuel, they've rejected his sons because they were 'er ne'er-do-wells and they were taking advantage of the people. And so they wanted to have a king like everybody else. And that's always the problems that believers get into when they are in spiritual rebellion. They want to act like everybody in the world. Uh, we get into the same problem in the United States. We want to act like Europe now instead of being Americans and emphasize the uh, uniqueness of being an American and uh, American exclusivism. We think that that's, we have people who think that's just a pride and arrogance when it's just the opposite, but they are in rejection against establishment truth and so they call uh, the good things bad. Well, this is not unlike what was going on in Israel at that time because Israel uh, lived at a time, the, the period of the Judges was characterized by moral relativism. Judges says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They weren't looking to absolutes. They weren't looking to Scripture as universal absolutes. They all wanted to do what they wanted to do, and to heck with what God says or what anybody else says. And so they rejected the uh, judgeship of Samuel. They wanted to have a king like everybody else. So God gave them a man who looked like a king. He was tall, he was handsome, he was a military uh, uh leader that gave them some great victories initially, but he his devotion to God was rather uh short-lived, and it wasn't long before Saul got involved in a lot of carnality and in disobedience to God as I quoted earlier, he uh refused to completely uh, destroy and annihilate the Amalekites. And so uh, the prophet Samuel came to him, and said that his sin was like this, was a sin of rebellion. It was like the sin of witchcraft. And that because of that, God was going to take the kingdom from him and give it to somebody else. In the very next chapter, Samuel anointed David to be the next king of Israel. But being anointed as king doesn't mean you have been installed as the king. And so there's this period of about 10 or 15 years between the anointing of David and the death of Saul, during which time uh, Saul is constantly uh, attacking David. There were times when he was very close to David and invited him to live with him, gave him his daughter Michal as uh, as his wife, but then he would turn against them and seek to kill him. And during that time, David would flee. He would not uh, lead a rebellion against Saul because he knew that in God's timing, Saul's reign would be brought to an end and so David is going to wait now this is the end of that period Saul has now been in uh, profound carnality and rebellion against God for a long time in 1 Samuel 28 uh, verse 3 uh, we're given a little bit of background that by this time Samuel had died and whenever Saul things got really bad and things got desperate and Saul was having his panic attacks and couldn't rest at night and he was being oppressed We'll get into this in a few verses. Uh, he was being oppressed by demons, then Saul could always go to samuel uh he you know like a lot of people, when things get really really bad they 'll show up in Bible class for a few weeks and then when things straighten out, then they go back to living their life uh, on the basis of their sin nature, and they don't stick with it and That was kind of how uh, saul was in first samuel twenty eight three we read now, Samuel had died and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And, and then there's this parenthetical reminder because of what's coming up at the end of the chapter that Saul had put the mediums and spiritists out of the land, according to the Mosaic law, being a medium, a witch, a spiritist, Uh, Was a death penalty offense, but Saul was just like so many liberals today. We need to start calling Saul the, uh, you know, the the pantywaist liberal, bleeding heart liberal. He didn't want to have the death penalty. He didn't want to execute all of the Amalekites. He didn't want to execute the mediums and the witches. He just said, well, uh, we won't go quite that far, but we'll just expel them from the land. And there were a few that were covert and stayed in the land. One of which is the witch. Of, uh, of indoor, and so uh, Saul is going to uh, hit hit rock bottom here as he's facing this battle uh, with the Philistines up in the north of Israel. Now the Philistines are in the south, so this is a uh, uh, this shows how the Philistines had really uh, entered into the land and had gained a lot of control over the land. And uh, then we have a poem here from Rudyard Kipling. Uh, Oh, the road to Endor is the oldest road and the craziest road of all. Straight it runs to the witch's abode, as it did in the days of Saul. And nothing has changed of the sorrow in store, for such as go down on the road to Endor. So this is a well-known event in uh, literature. Many others have referred to it. Sadly, today so many people are biblically illiterate. They don't even know what it's talking about. We'll solve that problem tonight. Here is a wonderful aerial shot of this area where uh, so much happened in the Bible. In the foreground and off to the left, you can see this is a flat plain. This is the sort of the northeastern section of the valley of esdralon otherwise known as the valley of megiddo the hill of megiddo har megiddo means the hill of megiddo for which this gets its name is actually way off to the left uh, from the from this particular picture and what we have here is uh, three just identified three locations here this is mount gilboa which is where the final battle takes place between Saul and the Philistines, and they defeat Saul. Saul commits suicide. Jonathan, his son, is killed. And afterward, when David finds out about this, David curses part of the mountain. And you can see this, that this part of the mountain is barren. It was It's never grown vegetation. All the way back to the time of uh, david's david's curse and this other side we have vegetation now those of you who've been to israel Beit Shan, which is a tremendous uh, archaeological dig uh, because in the time of christ it was one of the most extensive uh, greco-roman cities part, part of the decapolis meaning the ten cities it was the only one that was on the west side of the jordan and that was built uh, at the base of the Old Testament city where the, the tell exists, the mound exists for ancient Beit Shon now the way Beit Shon plays into this story is that when Saul is defeated and he commits suicide that the men of Beit Shon come they decapitate Saul and John they take their body or the Philistines have decapitated them and the men from Beit Shon come and hang their bodies up on the wall at Beit Shon. then the men of Jabesh Gilead which is a in the hazy distance here across the river jordan come and take the bodies take them back and then then bury them so all of this and many other things happened in this particular area there's a spring here at the base of this hill called Ain harad Ain is the hebrew for spring this is the location of the uh, uh, today, there's not much there. It's just a little trickle of water that comes out because so much of the water is uh, from the <clears throat> aquifers there is taken out uh, for for irrigation. But at the time in the Old Testament, there was a huge amount of water there. I even have some pictures from the 19th century where there was a huge amount of water. This was where Gideon took his 300 uh, actually he had more than that. He had about 13,000 and said all those who, uh, just, who dip the water with their hands, send them home. And the ones who don't, those are the ones you'll take into battle. And that's how he called the number down from about 13,000 down to 300. And so this occurred right here at Ain Harad. There's a kibbutz right, right, uh, right over here. Called, uh, <clears throat> which is the Kibbutz of uh, Ein Herod, which is where Ord Wingate set up his headquarters uh, during the Arab revolt of the ni- late 1930s and trained the night fighter squadrons for the Haganah, the Jewish army, Israeli army at that time before there was a the state of Israel, trained men like Moshe Dayan and several others in guerrilla tactics. And that occurred right there, on. Uh, our last trip to Israel, we went through this area and went to his command post, which is still, the house is still there and it still has a marker on it indicating its location. And from that area, you can see across the valley uh, to Indor. Now, there's also a an archaeological dig, the ancient... Uh, uh, ancient city of Jezreel is located right, right here. So you can see a lot of things that happened in the Bible happened in this very small uh, piece of real estate. But indoor, there's nothing there now. But it was located out in this uh, area of the plain. This is another shot of um, of Mount Gilboa, and you can see the right side is barren, and the left side has vegetation. And then this is a shot taken from the tell at Jezreel looking out across the field and somewhere out in the distance in that field was where The village of Endor existed where Saul went in disguise to visit the uh, witch of Endor, which is what we're going to look at. But before we get any further, we need to pay attention to the vocabulary of demon possession and demon influence. Now, this is very important because, as I pointed out last time, the word demon possess has a connotation. The English word possess has a connotation in English of ownership, and that's not in the Greek term at all. In fact, what we have are these phrases. The first phrase is the word in innumity akatharto. Akatharsis, akatharsis has the word is the word for unclean, and numa is the word for spirit. So this means with an unclean spirit. So a person who is said to be demon possessed. The Greek word is daimonizomai, but that same person is described as having or he is with an unclean spirit. The way to understand a vague word like daimonizomai, which is the word translated as demon possession, is to look at the other words used in the context that are more precise. And if a word is vague like daimonizomai, then those other terms define it for the reader. What you have today is people who come along and say, well, this word, diamond It just simply, if you break it down etymologically, it's, a, it's a, um, a present passive indicative. It just means to be acted upon by a demon. Well, somebody can be acted upon by a demon in a very mild way. Uh, if you are living in the devil's world, you're being acted upon by a demon. So that affects everybody through the world system. Or sometimes being acted upon by a demon could be some sort of extreme thing, like we have portrayed in the scripture. Well, the pro- and you'd be amazed at how many people are buying into this kind of general nonsense and very bad exegetical approach today. Um, the reality is the word "daimonizma" is only used of these certain extreme kinds of activities. Of demons it's never used of the milder forms it's only used of these more extreme forms and these are some of the other words that are used to describe that somebody who is with an unclean spirit Uh, mark 5 8 through 13 all of these are taken from the same passage describing the gadarene demoniac we'll look at that in just a minute Uh, this next one is a description of the demon is just an unclean spirit uh he's uh the the person who has, the man who has the unclean spirit. The third category is he is daimonizami, literally just acted upon by a demon. Uh, but this same man in Luke 827 describing the same event says that this man had an unclean spirit, had a demon, uh echo daimonio. That verb echo meaning to have is the same word used of the uh, this this uh, fortune telling slave girl in Acts 16. She had a spi- a, a a spirit of the puthanas the python. Now, whenever Jesus, the disciples, or Paul in Acts cast out a demon, the words that you have in the context are these three. The first word is the word. X erkomai. The root word there, erkomai, means to come or to get at, uh, to come or to go. The prefix X ex- means out of, so it means to go out of or to come out of. That's very important. It's out of and into terminology that we have here. The other word that is used is the word ace erkamai That preposition ace means to go somewhere, into something. So that means to enter into. The first word means to come out of. And then the last word that's important is this word ek Balo Ballo is the word to cast or to throw. So if you were going fishing, you would use the word ballo in terms of casting your, your lure out into the water. But when it's ekbalo, ek means out of, that would be casting it out of something, and so uh, that's pulling something out or casting it out, and that's what's used of a demon. So I, I, I've made this little chart here to show the difference. If you're talking about something going into something, entering into a house, getting into a boat, you would use the word ace erkamai. you're going into something if you're getting out of the boat or you're throwing something out of the boat or throwing something out of the house or getting it out of the house, you would use the term ekbalo. That means to go out of something. And if you're describing what has happened, then you use the term eksearchomai to go out, to come out, to proceed out of something. And so these are the terms that are used as synonyms for diamondizomai. So you have a general term. Well, it, it doesn't just mean, it could just mean to be acted upon by a demon, but what the words around it describe are someone who has a demon in them that has entered into them, aserkamai, and in order to relieve them of their state of diamondizomai, the demon has to be cast out of them, and then we're told the demon goes out of this man and goes into the herd of pigs. And so that's that those verbs give precision to our understanding here. And so what we learn from looking at these words is that uh, going into and going out of are words related to demon possession. So demon possession doesn't mean owned by a demon. It means to be controlled internally by a demon. Now, there are two pa- impo- a couple of important passages to look at. One is uh, looking at the Old Testament. Well, wasn't Saul demon didn't he have this kind of activity in the old testament where the demon is entering into him absolutely not i put three verses up here on the screen you have first samuel 16 23 that says and so it was whenever the spirit from god that's talking about the evil spirit because god is sovereign Over Satan and the demons. They can't do anything unless God gives them permission. We learn that from Job 1 and Job 2. In Job 1 and Job 2, the writer of Job describes this scene in heaven where all of the angels, the fallen angels and the elect angels are before God. And Satan comes before God and God says, well, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been cruising the earth. And you've got a guy down there and he just loves you, but that's because you've been so good to him. And I want to show that he, that's the only reason he loves you is because you've given him everything. He's rich. He has a great family. He has great kids. Everybody loves him. He's wealthy. He's respected. And the only reason he loves you is because you've given him such a good life. And God says, well, you can do everything, but don't touch him. You can, you can test him. And so Satan then caused a, uh, storm to come up, and as a result of the storm, uh, his herds are destroyed, his children's lives are taken, tornado destroys the house that they're in where they're having a birthday party and after that, job is left he's lost his wealth he's lost his flocks and herds he's lost his family, but he refuses to curse God. And then chapter 2 comes along. You have the second similar scene. Satan comes before God. It says, well, it didn't really work out the way I wanted it to. The guy still loves you, so uh, give me permission to take away his health. And so that happens in the second chapter. What we see here is that Satan can't do anything unless God gives him permission. He is not running around. Uh, totally independent on his own, just persecuting whoever he wants to whenever he wants to. So God's in control. So whatever happens as a result of satanic or demonic involvement in human history is under God's permissive will. God allows that to happen for his purposes because God's omniscient. He knows what what will happen. So God is bringing divine discipline upon Saul for his uh, sin of rebellion and he has allowed this demon to oppress Saul. But the word that is used here is it's upon Saul. It's not in him. It's not the Greek preposition bait, b, ba, which means in. It's the Greek preposition l, which means upon. It's, an, it's external. It's not internal. If it was internal, it would be another one. That's the same word we have in verse uh, uh, chapter 18, verse 10. This distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and then first Samuel nineteen nine, another one, uh the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. It's all external. Whereas the language that we see in the in the New Testament uh is language related to something internal, something going into somebody that has to be taken out of them. And so the old testament is consistent with what we see in uh, in the New Testament. So these demons that we're talking about are the uh, angels that have followed Satan based on Matthew 23, uh, 41, uh, where uh, their judgment is, re- their prophesied judgment is, uh, is described here where God says depart from uh, the judgment. This is the judgment that occurred at the, uh, at the uh, judgment of the sheep and the goats And the goats are the, the, uh, unbelievers during the church age period. I mean, during the tribulation period who have persecuted Israel. And at the goat, sheep and the goat judgment, God says, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that defines for us in that last phrase that the demons are the angels that are following, uh, Satan. And this is see, the same phrase is used in Revelation twelve nine. Uh, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. See, he's not cast out of heaven until halfway through the tribulation. Uh, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So that's another term showing that the demons are Satan's angels. They're not some other kind of creation. Now let's look at Let's look at our passage and and just go through what happened in 1 Samuel 28. So we're told at the beginning, it happened in those days, the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. Now, Philistia is located far in the southwest of Israel. It's down where the Gaza Strip is today. In fact, Gaza and Gath and Ashkelon, which is now a Jewish city, uh, these were all part of the five cities of the Philistines. And for Achish to have penetrated as far north as the uh, northeast uh, side of the valley of Esdralon, this is about 70 to 80 miles inside of Israel's territory. This shows that the Philistines have controlled a large amount of the territory, especially in the north uh, in Galilee. And so they are... Uh, going to go into battle against Saul and his army there on the uh, on the edge of Mount Gilboa, and Saul has to figure out what he's going to do. And since Samuel's dead, and God isn't speaking to Saul through Samuel anymore, Saul decides he needs to get information. And uh, since the end justifies the means, he's going to go find if there's any witches hiding. Uh, in the land anymore and he's going to go uh, to see them and verse 5 says when Saul saw the army of the Philistines he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly what motivates us to sin are usually emotional sins we're fearful we're scared we're uh, uh we're frightened or we're arrogant or we're angry and this this then is the mental attitude sin that motivates the overt sins so verse 6 says, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. The Lord hadn't been talking to him for a long time because he was out of fellowship. Psalm 66, 18 says, when the, uh, <clears throat> that the Lord will not hear when we are, when, when we're in a state of sin. That, um, uh, that when we, literally it says, when we see sin, when we, re, it's translated, when we regard sin in our heart, but when we see sin in our heart, Uh, the Lord will not hear. So when we're out of fellowship, the Lord doesn't listen, and so the Lord is ignoring Saul here. Verse 7, then the Lord said to his servants, uh, Find me a woman who is a medium. They had to find one because Saul had already run them all out many years earlier. Uh, Find a woman that's a medium, and I may go to her and inquire of her. And so they said, Well, there's actually one very close here at Endor. This was only a couple of miles from Mount Gilboa. So Saul disguised himself. He put on a cloak, uh, outer garments, and goes to uh, the woman in order to uh, seek guidance, but he doesn't want to be known and identified. So he goes to her and asks her to have a seance and to call up someone whose name he will give her, he's going to withhold the information about Samuel uh, to the last possible minute. But she's a little cagey. She doesn't want to become entrapped by some sort of uh, a covert operation here with some undercover uh, narc coming after her. So she says, well, wait a minute. You know what Saul's done. He's cast all the uh, spiritists and demons out of the land. Why are you laying a trap for my life? So Saul swore to her by the Lord, look how far down he's gone in his carnality. Now he's going to swear in the name of Yahweh that he's not going to entrap her. So see, when we get into carnality, we start using religion for our own purposes. And then the, the woman said, uh, whom shall I bring up for you? And he says, well, bring up Samuel. And so she goes through her normal little ritual thing, and she probably has some sort of affiliation with an angostromuthos or this ventriloquist demon. And so all that's ever happened before is this disembodied voice comes out of the ground. Either she's a fraud and she's uh, doing it like a ventriloquist, or there's a demon that's in association with her, uh, probably a demon in, in, in this particular case. And but what actually happens is Samuel appears to her. There he is in in his intermediate body, this is one of the great passages uh, that emphasizes an intermediate body. Samuel uh comes up from Sheol, which has two compartments, remember, torments and paradise. So he's coming up from the paradise compartment of Sheol. And as soon as she recognizes him, and this isn't the fraud, fraudulent thing she's used to pulling off, she is scared because she knows that this is the real thing. She's never seen the real thing before. It's never happened. And so, uh, she, she cries out with a loud voice and she turns to Saul. Now all of a sudden she's realized who Saul is and what's going on. She says, you're Saul. Why have you deceived me? And and he tries to comfort her and says, uh, well, don't be afraid. What did you see? And she says, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. What's his form? So she says, an old man coming up. He's covered with a mantle. And Saul determined that this must be Samuel. So he stoops down. He bows down to Samuel, which wasn't what he should have done if Samuel had actually been there. It shows, again, you only bow down and worship God, not a prophet. And Samuel sounds a little irritated. Why in the world have you brought me out of paradise to come back to this nasty earth? That's my paraphrase. I'm deeply distressed. You can add your own uh, idiom to that. I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me. Oh, this is Saul talking. I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets or dreams. Therefore I've called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Now, stop a minute. He's not. He, he tried to approach God, but on his terms. That's why God's not talking to him. This is like a lot of Christians. They want divine guidance, but they don't want to go to the Bible. They don't really want to go to Bible class. They don't want to get in fellowship. They just want to send an email to the pastor to get some idea real quick as to what they ought to do. And they have refused for weeks and months and years to build a... a, a, a build doctrine into their soul to give them the framework for decision making. And they've rejected, in many cases, people have rejected most of that. So Samuel uh says, well, why in the world are you doing calling me since the Lord's departed from you and he's now become your enemy? Now Saul is a believer. How do we know Saul? I've run into people who say, well Saul wasn't a believer because no believer would act this way. I, my response is you don't know too many believers, do you? Um, Saul is uh, Saul is in rebellion, but in the early years it says God gave him a new heart. Uh, God gave, uh, performed several miracles to validate his appointment and, and the fact that Saul was anointed to be king. And when this is all over with, Samuel is going to say, Today, Saul, I'm going to see you and your sons in Sheol. We're going to be together. So they're not going to be separated. Saul's not going to go to torments, and, and Samuel in paradise, they're going to be in the same place. So that's why we know that Saul is a believer. But he's a disobedient believer, and he's become an enemy of God. This is what happens when believers go into carnality. So Samuel said, or excuse me, um, He said in verse 17, And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Now, how many years ago did that happen? That was like 25 years earlier. And now... It's 25 years later, and now Saul is going to receive the divine discipline for that disobedience 25 years earlier. Moreover, Samuel says, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all all night. So what we learn from this is something about the operation of this kind of fortune-telling spirit, although in this case it was a legitimate thing. The witch of Endor is not unlike this servant girl in Acts 16 who has this uh has a spirit of the uh python or the puthana spirit. Now the other thing that I want you to go to before we wrap up is in Mark chapter five. Uh, this is also described in Luke 8, but in Mark 5 we have a little bit shorter version, so that's why I chose that one uh, tonight. And it's helpful to read the different accounts. And there's these are all kind of abbreviated and edited by the different gospel writers to serve the function the editorial function of what they're of what they are describing and so each one's different in Matthew there are actually two uh, in Luke there is one he's just focusing on one he's not saying there and, and in mark there's one they 're not saying there was only one they're saying they're just focusing on one they're not uh, talking about the other one so for some reason these have all been are showing very high on the screen, uh, but in Mark five uh, two, we have the description here as they come into the area of the Gadarenes. Now this is an uh, an area that is across the, uh, the the Sea of Galilee on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in the area today that is part of the Golan heights it's not it's up into that area that region in the Golan in the ancient world that was known as Bashan and so this is the area of Gadara which was a gentile area so they go up to the country of the Gadarenes and when he'd come out of the boat immediately so they're still low they haven't gone up into the heights of the Golan yet and he says um This man with an unclean spirit approached him. So the first description of him is he has an unclean uh, spirit. Met this man out of the tombs who has an unclean, uh, unclean spirit. Then in verse 2, or 3, we read, who had his dwelling among the tombs. Luke tells us he was naked, he never wore any clothes. Uh, Who had his dwelling among the tombs, no one could bind him not even with chains. Now, in this particular case, he had some, he, the demon gave him a supernatural strength and ability to uh, break the chains. Uh, the chains had been pulled apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Now, who's in control of this guy? It's the demon And the word worship means to bow down. So don't get the idea that he is worshiping in a positive sense. He's The demon, because the demon knows who Jesus is as the second person of the Trinity and the sovereign of the universe, the demon has to show his obeisance to the sovereign God. And so the demon who's in control is bringing this man to Jesus. This is not a sign that the man is exercising positive volition because the man is not in control. The demon's in control. And so the man runs, um, bows down before Jesus, and he cries out with a loud voice, Now, the reason I'm making a point here is he ran, he worshiped, he cried out with a loud voice, but when you get to what is said, it's the demon speaking. So the he here is describing the man, but the the actions of the man from his speaking to his running and his bowing down is all really the action of the demon controlling him. And he says, "'What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?' I implore you by God that you do not torment me. What's he saying? He said, don't send me into torments. Don't send me into the abyss with all those other demons. Remember the sons of God that got sent into a deep, dark uh, dungeon, put in chains of deep darkness until they're they're judged at the end of the tribulation period? These demons don't want to go through that. So they're saying, don't send us to torments. Four And there's an explanation, verse 8, he, that is Jesus, had said, come out of the, uh, un, come out of the, uh, of the man, unclean spirit. And so here, that's that first, uh, put the slide up there. That's that first word at the top, ex-ercomi. Jesus says, come out. And, uh, the second line there shows the, the, the description of him from Mark chapter 5, 2. He was with an unclean spirit. So he's come to Jesus Jesus has come out of the man unclean spirit and then there's this interchange that takes place between the demon and Jesus and so the the um, Jesus asks him his name now what you'll see today in pop demonology is if you're going to cast out a demon you have to con- you have to know their name because that gives you power over them that's the pagan way of doing an exorcism that's not what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus does by asking his name is to expose the fact that there's not one demon, but there are several thousand demons, showing that many, many demons can control one person. So he said, what's your name? And the man said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Legion in the Roman, uh, Roman army involves two or three thousand soldiers. So there's two or three thousand demons here. And they start, uh, they start begging, uh, Jesus not to send them out of the country. So there's, verse 11 says there was a large herd of swine feeding there near the mountain. Now this is a Gentile area, so that you wouldn't have the pigs in, in Israel because pigs are an unclean animal, so they're going to send the unclean spirit into an unclean animal. And so the large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain. So all the demons begged him, send us to the swine that we may enter them. So this is that 512 is the top verse. Entering them is the second word at the bottom, Ace ercomai. We want to go into them. And at once Jesus gave them permission, then the unclean spirits went out and entered. So the first word went out is ex erkamai, they came out of the man, and they entered into the swine. There were about 2,000 of them. And notice it's an approximation. And the herd then ran violently down into the, the steep place, into the sea, and drowned in the sea. And then in verse 15 we read. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting in clothes, this first time he's mentioned his clothes, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So the man is described as the one who had been demon-possessed. There's our word demonizomai. So demonizomai is defined as somebody who has a demon inside them. We see all the synonyms used. He had a demon, The de- he's with a demon, and the demon has to go out of him, and then the demon enters into something else. So all of this tells us that this wor- these words, exerchimai and aserchimai, are so important because if they are not the interpretive crux of this passage, then you get real problems later on when you talk about Jesus. Be- I mean, uh, Judas is scary because Judas said, it says, Satan entered into him. And there are some people who have made the horrible exegetical error of saying, of saying, well, that's just demon influence or Satan influence. No. If you, if you're going to say that word means influence over in John 13, then you're going to destroy your whole demonology and you're going to destroy the whole argument for why Christians can't be demon possessed because you can't define demon possession anymore. This is critical. These are technical words, and they have to mean the same thing in the same context every time, or language really doesn't mean anything, and you're just perverting the use of language, which is something that most liberals do. Conservatives should never do that. Every word of God is authoritative, and we need to pay attention to it, and that's significant. So what we've seen here is this important concept that when you have a demon that that demon is inside controlling the person. And so what delivers this woman is that she is going to be given, the demon is cast out by the apostle Paul. And then there's going to be a loss of power. But we're going to come back next time. I want to talk a little bit more about why Christians can't be demon-possessed before we go on into the rest of the story. But it's a great basis for hope for us because what we see is that the power of Satan is under the control of God, we are God's, and therefore we have great hope and confidence and should never be afraid of Satan or the powers of evil because God is with us and therefore God plus one is a majority and we have nothing to be afraid of. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be right reminded of the, the the fact that we live in the midst of a spiritual battle. We live in the midst of a spiritual rebellion that has its roots in eternity past and that by trusting in you, first of all by believing in Christ, secondly by trusting in you, we have victory over the devil's world and this is a moment by moment battle and the only basis for victory is first of all the cross and secondly our, our walk by the Holy Spirit and this is what gives us strength and power. And, Father, we pray that you might encourage us as we study this and continue to go forward, understanding your your power and your authority over everything on the planet. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.